Hello and welcome to Big Ideas, a podcast from Texas State University. I'm your host, Dan Seed from the School of Journalism and Mass Communication. This month, we're joined by one of our newest faculty members, Assistant Professor Dr. Amy Villarreal from the Department of Anthropology. Dr. Villarreal teaches courses that bridge anthropology and ethnic studies and aim to cultivate moral agency and social responsibility to guide students in becoming conscious of the social, historical, and ideological conditions that shape their lives. U.S. Secretary of the Interior Deb Holland recently appointed Dr. Villarreal to the newly formed Advisory Committee on Reconciliation in Place Names. This committee is an advisory group whose charge is to identify and recommend changes to derogatory names still in use for places throughout the country. Dr. Villarreal, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for the invitation. I briefly explained what you study, research, teach, but could you put it into your own words so our audience can get a better sense and understanding of what it is that you do? Well, the reason I think I was hired in anthropology is because it's an applied anthropology program. And applied anthropology tries to actually make anthropological knowledge publicly accessible and also useful to solve problems in society and to also build these community relationships. And that's the kind of work that I've been involved in my whole life. So a lot of anthropologists go out to different countries and you know study other people's homes and come back and share the knowledge with us. And that's important because we wanna understand the broad scope of human diversity in the world. And I think that's the beauty of anthropology. But my work, I call myself a home place ethnographer and I promote the practice of Anthropolocura, which is a combination of self-discovery, community relations, and also just madness, because you're doing research at home. And when you do research at home, you're involved with maybe family members, people you went to high school with, you know, people that you have close relationships with that don't get severed when you just you know, go back to the university and start writing. And your obligations to them are also deeper. And you have to kind of be aware of the codes of respect. And even when you disagree, you know, with your own family members over what you're researching. So there's a lot of layers of complexity. And that's why I call it anthropolocura. And for me, it is applied because I'm interested in sanctuary spaces. So the community spaces, the spaces of protection and care, hospitality that people create for themselves. And these are people who are often made vulnerable by state policies, like immigration policies that make them deportable, that make it possible for them to be separated from their families and communities, and also other marginalized communities, queer folks, um, who often in this neoliberal world that we're living in, we're told, take care of yourself, you know, self-care. So <laughs> the state is kind of removing itself from taking care of us, and now we have to take care of ourselves. Well, I'm interested in those kinds of communities that we form. I call them sanctuary scapes because they kind of allow us to escape from these forms of oppression a lot of the people are dealing with and form communities that empower us, that help us through hard times, that make mutuality a value. And I think that sanctuary, we often think of it in terms of, of churches or sacred space, but we make sanctuaries in schools, we make them at our workplaces, we form them within churches, 
that maybe there's a broader congregation and then there's a smaller one that's just the immigrant community or, or a different community of interest. We form them just in daily life. And, you know, sometimes they're highly political. They're relevant to immigrant rights movements, for example. We've seen also that immigrants continue to take sanctuary in churches when they have deportation orders. And usually they're part of a broader faith-based movement that aims to protect uh, vulnerable people, immigrants and others from persecution, prosecution, deportation, and other kinds of exploitation or violence. So I'm very interested in how communities make, make it possible for themselves to survive under conditions of oppression or duress. And I trace these things historically. I look at sanctuary and sanctuary practices and movements from the Spanish colonial period all the way to the present. And um, that's what my book is about. It's called Sanctuary Escapes in the New Mexico Borderlands. And it tells time traveling stories about how vulnerable people uh, come together and create communities of hospitality and protection for themselves. I, I think it's interesting the way that you describe the word or this idea of sanctuaries. I mean, we can discuss this a little further, but it's taken on its own meaning, I think now. Maybe I'm incorrect, but for me, it's taken on its own meaning in the 21st century, but it doesn't seem like it's something that's relatively new. I grew up in the Northeast, and in the Northeast, you have neighborhoods. Boston, for example, the city I went to college, the North End is largely Italian. South Boston is largely Irish, churches, communities, all that. So this is nothing particularly new, but do people kind of get that sense that this is like a new age buzz thing? Yeah, I think I'm, I'm showing that it's not new. And you mentioned ethnic enclaves, right? Like Little Italy, you know, Little Japan, Chinatown. Um, and these ethnic enclaves were created for a reason. People were not accepted in the broader community and they had to live among each other and create spaces of protection and care for themselves. The, the origin of those ethnic enclaves is basically responding to some type of violence, external violence that people had to bond together in these spaces. And now, you know, they're ethnic enclaves and we go to them and we, you know, do business there. And, and it's um, kind of just part of the landscape of America, right? And that's the beauty of it. And so, yeah, you're absolutely right that sanctuary escapes are not new at all. I think uh, what I try to set forth though is that when people talk about sanctuary, now we think about sanctuary cities, for example, or sanctuary jurisdictions. Here in Texas, there's where there's a law passed where you can't have them anymore. In fact, they tried to make it so that you can't even talk about sanctuary. Right. Yes. So it's become a definitely a political hot button topic. And so that's really kind of, I think, ripped out the kind of the moral and the sacred tenor of sanctuary as it used to be, as, it's, as it was tied to kind of a faith-based or kind of a moral economy in which people protected themselves. And we often trace that back to kind of biblical origin stories about cities of refuge where people would flee to and they were protected. Or, or going to, a, you know, fleeing to the sanctuary, to the church, if you were being 
followed or being persecuted and you would actually get some time out to kind of figure out your case while you were in sanctuary. And so those are kind of ancient practices of, you know, judicial system right, during those times. But what I try to do is I, I link sanctuary escapes back to Native American practices. So I'm interested in sanctuary in the American context as kind of an autochthonous tradition and strategy of survival. And I start my exploration after the 1680 Pueblo Revolt. And so Pueblo Indian and Athapascan people during you know, the colon Spanish colonial period rose up against the, the Spanish empire and actually kicked them out for 12 years. They burnt their mission villages to the ground and they started over and they created these cities of sanctuary atop high mesas and they went to their old ancestral sites and these cities were really interesting because in the first time that we know of in recorded history, they had people of different tribes living together, people who spoke different languages, people from different regions. And they were able to kind of form these diverse communities, you know, and these diverse sanctuary cities, they were in different places, Mexico, some was were in Eastern New Mexico, others were kind of in Southern New Mexico, others in Northern New Mexico. And they were communicating with each other. And we have the evidence of this through pottery. There was kind of like revolutionary pottery, a semiotics around it. And so what we see is Native Americans basically creating their own nation with these sanctuary cities, these cities of ref refuge as kind of Native hubs in this process. And I thought that it was just so fascinating looking at the archaeology of this. I was looking at the work of Matt Liebman and Joseph Aguilar, who's a native archaeologist, and many others who were looking at the post-revolt period and seeing how in a place awashed with refugees, right, native people who were made refugees in their own homeland, how they were able to, to reconstitute themselves and form communities of protection and care in this interim period. And that's where I start my exploration of sanctuary, not necessarily in biblical you know, origin, but an origin story rooted in places of refuge, regions of refuge and rebellion right here in the, the Americas. And um, those like mini rebellions that you're talking about, Little Italy, Chinatown, <laughs> originally they were little rebellions and now they're completely mainstreamed. I think that when we trace it back historically, you can see these negotiations going on and how people were able to survive under really harsh conditions of oppression. I think it's very interesting when, when you frame it that way and put it that way to show, like you said, these places that are mainstream and touristy. Originally, you know, my great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather, the, the Nina signs in Massachusetts, no Irish need apply. That led to the formation of communities and churches and whatnot, where they could come together in their community and eventually branch out into, quote, mainstream, into jobs and professions like politics and police forces and schools and whatnot. So it's, it's interesting when you, when you put it that way to give people historical perspective on that. And you mentioned, you know, that your work focuses on the Southwest in the United States and the Americas, and you're a native of New Mexico. So this, this must be intensely 
personal for you. Your, your father was a park ranger from what I've read. So how does your life experience tie into your work? How did it influence that? Well, it, I was deeply influential because I grew up, of course, in Indian country. I grew up in New Mexico. My father is from South Texas and my mother is from Northern New Mexico. And of course we have ancestral ties to San Felipe Pueblo and Ocuevingue Pueblo. So I had these landscapes that I was navigating, you know, these different cultural traditions and different spaces. And even though New Mexico is considered a provincial place, it's not really kind of on the national scene most of the time. It's a very interesting place actually to study migration. People, when they study migration, often go to California, uh, they go to Texas, right? Because we have large numbers of migrants here. But New Mexico has always had a deep connection to Mexico through the Camino Real, through its relationship with Spanish colonialism, and also the different native people who maintain their original homelands in New Mexico. Unfortunately, a lot of Native folks were removed uh, forcefully from their homelands and moved to Oklahoma and you know, other places where they're not Native to those areas. In New Mexico, we have a deeply rooted culture um, and one that is also replenished and also you know, being revived and, and reorganized because of migration. And so to see how a very rooted culture incorporates new immigrants okay, over time is, and, and very visible and influential Native American people is a different context than studying migration in Texas or in California. And I think it allows us to see things that you might not see otherwise. So we've talked on this idea about sanctuaries and, and your work with that, that idea. National parks and parks in general seem to fit into that idea of sanctuary. Is that, is that accurate? Yes, of course. Uh, we, uh, because we're so kind of detached from nature these days, you know, sitting in front of computers, most of us, you know, blue collar workers or academics, and we feel that nature is kind of something to go out and discover instead of it being all around us. And even, you know, as far as mental health is concerned, one of the things that people say to do is, oh, we'll get out in nature. And I think the people who created the national park system had that in mind. Uh, they were worried that uh, these areas would be destroyed by development. And they wanted to maintain them, this idea of a pristine, you know, a, a pristine environment in which people could visit and enjoy. Then there was also national monuments associated with these protected areas. And so I think the people who established them were very savvy in that way. You know, these areas continue to be, you know, here for us to enjoy. Big Bend and with Big Sur and, you know, other places that we just love to visit, uh, the Grand Canyon. Um, but we also forget that these places were highly contested. And oftentimes, of course, they were native sites of emergence, such as the Grand Canyon, people in the Zuni, for example, and other tribes in New Mexico connect the Grand Canyon to their places where their people emerged and then migrated out uh, towards you know, places, uh, special places where they live now. 
Halonawa, which is the center place in Zuni. And uh, so the Grand Canyon is a special place for them. You know, other tribes see them like, for example, at Shiprock for the Navajo is a church. <laughs> if we're gonna use it in religious terms, it is a very sacred site that has to do with their you know, spiritual connection to the landscape. And so when these places are shut off from native people, they no longer get to use them in the same way, no longer get to be there for their ceremonies or have the kind of connection that they had with them in the past. And there was also during the Chicano movement in New Mexico, highly contested space of the national parks in Tierra Maria area in which Reyes Tijerina, who was one of the leaders of the land grant movement, um, the people, the Indo-Hispano people or Mestizo people in that region were very upset that they could no longer use the forest lands to, you know, herd their sheep, to feed their sheep or to get, you know, wood for their fires. And so this very impoverished community became more impoverished because now they were cut off from their communal lands. And so that was part of the Chicano movement in that region uh, to contest that. So we often forget this longer history of contested landscapes. Uh, we see this in the water protectors, right? That are trying to, we're trying to get rid of the Doppel pipeline. We see this in Navajo country where people are trying to get mining out of there and, and other kinds of environmental destruction out of their lands. And so I think that um, growing up in New Mexico, it gave me a deep insight into those contested landscapes and the fact that I grew up in Indian country and also have ancestral and family connections to Pueblo people made me have this heightened awareness about having a land base, what that means, being in your place of emergence, being, being in your home place, and how these places are sacred to us and also highly contested. Even though, you know, some, the national park system is a beautiful idea, there are still um, situations that we have to be aware of when we go there. And we are joined again by Dr. Amy Villarreal from the Department of Anthropology. She is our guest, and we're, we're here mainly to talk about what we're going to talk about here now, and we touched on a little bit, the Advisory Committee on Reconciliation and Place Names. You were named to that committee over the summer by the Secretary of the Interior. How did you end up on this committee? It's a very select group. Yes, I'm, of course, honored and thrilled to be nominated and also selected to take part. And especially because Deb Holland, you know, the Secretary of Interior, is the first Native American uh, Secretary of the Interior. And she's also from Laguna Pueblo, which is in New Mexico. And so I feel, you know, a kinship with her <laughs> um, for that reason. Even though I don't personally know her yet, I'm very excited to meet her. Well, a um, call went out last year, I think it was around January or February, for nominations. And the president of the university where I was working at the time, which was Our Lady of the Lake University, her name is Diane Melby. She got the announcement from Joaquin Castro's office. And she asked me if I would be interested and if she, 
you know, if I wanted her to nominate me and I said, yes, of course, please do. <laughs> and so she nominated me. And then I got notice a few months later that Joaquin Castro had forwarded my application up to, you know, the, the next phase. Then, you know, I found out that I had, you know, my nomination had been accepted. So it was, you know, it <laughs> kind of just went that way. And, and I was really uh, lucky that I was selected. And so there was various people that were selected based on their expertise. There's a lot of uh, tribal leaders that are selected. There's community members that are selected. There's people who are anthropologists, archaeologists, people who have experience with the Park Service. A couple of people that were named for their experience in civil rights. And I was selected based on my expertise in civil rights. And so kind of in contrast, I suppose, to how we were talking about the national park system, the creation of it, how land was taken kind of in a unilateral way. Here you have a diverse group of stakeholders coming in to, to work on this committee. So what is the goal of this committee? Well, the goal of the committee is to review place names and also I think that historical information around monuments, but mostly right now place names to start with. And to see if there are any that are offensive to Native people of the region or that we need to work on changing. And as I said, when these places were developed, often the, the local community wasn't consulted in how the stories of these places would be told, on what they would be named. I noticed just here in Texas, there are some parks that are named for different battles that were fought between Europeans and indigenous people. And the perspective of the European is always highlighted. And uh, we don't really know much about how the native people fared in these battles. Or um, of course, there's living descendants around. You know, what, how would they name the park? How would they see its history being told? And so I think that the role of the committee is to just review some of these place names and make recommendations to the secretary of a process of how we can move forward in changing them uh, to make the stakeholders involved have more of a role, a larger role and more inclusive role in how we, we see these landscapes, also the stories told behind them, the places, the actual names of the places. And so I think our role is to consult with all these stakeholders and really come up with a better process for how we can make these parks more inclusive and accessible for all people, while also centering the perspectives of the local communities. So it's, a, it's about education in general for visitors, but also for rectifying those wrongs, right? That you're looking at places that may have racist names that where they name parks and whatnot, or rivers or, or valleys, certain names. What are some of the places that, that you know that are on the docket to kind of look at? Well, there's a lot of use of the S word. And so I don't know if you know it, but I don't want to say it because even in the communications, it says S dash, you know, A-W. And so that is a very offensive word in many Native communities. And there are a lot of parts that have that word in it. And so I think that those parts are probably the first to get to. 
So that we'll be, you know, looking at a process of how to change those those landscapes names or the you know the, the name how to name them in a more appropriate way. They were mentioned right in the uh, letter from Colin, mm -hmm. so I believe that that's going to be one of our first charges to look at those sites in particular. And of course, you know, the Native Hawaiians have some that they have selected, I'm sure. Pueblo leaders have already reached out to me and they're very concerned about sacred places such as Chaco Canyon and other sites being destroyed because of fracking or other types of environmental destruction. And I don't know if we're gonna get into that territory, but I'm sure I, of course, I'm gonna work with you know, the Pueblo leaders, I have names, you know, that they have been getting, you know, they've given me the names already to work with people on what their goals are, uh, so that I can, of course, bring up those concerns. And the, the S word that you're referring to, just to clue our audience in, is a word that describes a Native American woman or wife. It was the, if you know your sports history, 1960 in California, the Winter Olympics were held in a place that was the S word Valley in, in California. In California, So it kind of proliferates, right? And that's kind of the story is that when these areas were developed or named, it was again, named from that one side perspective without consultation of the groups who view these as not only sacred places, but places that were for all intents and purposes taken from them. Yes, absolutely. There'll be other places as well, not only Native American sites, but other communities uh, will be consulted as well. So real quick, you've laid out really well the importance of this, the, the reasoning behind it. But, you know, of course, in the day and age that we live in, right, you're going to hear people and people are going to say, well, there we go again. The wokeification continues. We're erasing history, changing longstanding names for what? political correctness, right? We've heard these arguments in recent years. I guess one more time for our audience at large, just so people can better understand it and, and give that importance of the charge that you have in your committee, why this review is important, why it is not an erasure of history or, or culture. What is the significance in doing this? Well, I guess you have to go back to whose history is being erased. And so often we know that the more dominant or more powerful community or culture is their version of history, their perspectives are going to be advanced. Whereas the enslaved, the colonized, the removed, their perspectives on history and place are erased. And in order for us to be a more inclusive society, that is focused on our shared history as Americans from the Americas and all of its complexities and beauty that we have created together, despite all of this hardship, despite all of the conflict, I think that it is, we're all beholden to this shared history. And it is so important for us to not acknowledge all of it and to be more inclusive, especially to our people who have been erased and have been marginalized in these stories. I have dedicated, I think, my entire career to spotlighting these stories. I made a short film along with uh, John Jota Leanes at UC Santa Cruz when I was a graduate student. 
about the 1680 Pueblo Revolt, which was one of the first American revolutions. So that's when the native people of New Mexico departed, cast out the Spanish empire for 12 years. And so we often look to the American Revolution of, you know, the, of the tea bags and you know, the um, Americans throwing off the chains of the British. We often forget that the people of the Pueblo and Athabascan people of the Southwest did the same thing many years before. And we don't recognize that as an American Revolution. Of course it was. And so the reason we made the film was to highlight that history. It's a cartoon. We wanted to make it accessible. It was, it's told through, through storytelling, through um, music and, and sketches, right? cartoons. And so that was a way to make that history, that dark history, right? But also a part of our history, really important part, knowable and accessible. And so that's part of you know, my job, I think, as an anthropologist who wants to highlight these stories and bring them to the surface so that we all can know about them and share in them. And I can't reiterate how important this is in our schools, in our monuments, in our, and in our national parks to be inclusive and respectful of all people in the area and who use those parks. Well, well, there's no doubt that knowing the full story makes us all better people, better citizens, a better country to understand all, all sides, perspectives, lives, what the American story is, because that history is certainly a part of the American story. So Dr. Amy Villarreal, thank you so much for joining us and best of luck with your work on the committee. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. And thank you all for joining us by downloading and listening. We'll have a new episode of Big Ideas next month. And until then, stay well and stay informed. Big Ideas TXST is a presentation of Texas State University and the Division of University Advancement. Subscribe to experience more innovative, thought-provoking content. If you like what you hear, consider leaving us a starred review, five if possible. The views expressed during this program are those of the individual participants and do not necessarily represent those of the university. Big Ideas is hosted by Daniel Seed, produced by Jamie Bloschke. Strategic consultant is Kelly Raz. 